My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Kimbra Johannes and Daniel Tsegai. In the last year, the issues of refugees have been part of the dominant public conversation in Canada like never before. Everyone has heard at least some version of the situation in Syria and the experiences of those who have fled. And despite a certain amount of racism and resistance, efforts to modestly increase and accelerate the admission of Syrian refugees to Canada have been quite broadly embraced by many Canadians. Over this time, though, Johannes, Tsegai, and many other people who are part of communities in Canada with roots in various African countries have noticed something odd about both the public conversation and about the measures enacted by the Canadian government to respond to the refugee crisis. Johannes and Tsegai are emphatically supportive of Syrian refugees and in fact argue that Canada should be admitting many, many more Syrians and giving them much better support when they arrive. But they wonder why Africans, who comprise a significant part of global flows of refugees, are so absent from public attention and at times even get scant attention within some migrant justice contexts. Furthermore, they note that Africans have been pointedly excluded from the modest government efforts to increase and ease admissions to Canada, and that even the government processing of requests for private sponsorships of African refugees remains uncertain and often extremely slow. They argue that challenging this exclusion is a question of basic justice. In part, this is true because Canada and other Western countries are often very complicit in the circumstances in many African countries that people are fleeing. Both Johannes and Segai are Eritrean, for instance, and Canadian mining companies are very much complicit in the repressive regime that upwards of 5,000 Eritreans per month are risking their lives to escape. They also argue that this marginalization of the refugees from African countries is yet another expression of the anti-black racism that causes such harm in Canada and globally. To address this, Johannes, Tsegai, and a handful of other people are putting together a new grassroots community organizing project called We Welcome African Refugees. Their goal is to challenge this erasure of African refugees from public discourse and government policy, but it's not only that. They're working to create a new organizing model for migrant justice work that is very much rooted in the communities in question. They're currently fundraising to hire part-time organizers in Vancouver, Toronto, and either Edmonton or Calgary, who will do the slow but vital work of connecting with and bringing together people from diverse African communities, who in turn will take leadership of the process and advance a set of priorities and actions that will truly address the needs their people face. We speak about the experiences of refugees from Eritrea and other African countries, about the marginalization of African refugees within popular discourse and government policy in Canada, and about the new grassroots model that We Welcome African Refugees is using to challenge this marginalization. I spoke with Johannes and Segai by Skype to phone from Toronto and Vancouver, respectively. My name is Kimbra Johannes. 
I've been organizing around multiple issues. I've been working with Daniel on this specific project and this campaign that we're doing. I've been also working with other groups like Decolonize Now that does anti-mining. We have a campaign about deinvesting from large banks that are invested in mining companies. So I'm really interested in how mining companies specifically target third world countries and then create displacement and then ultimately lead to refugee crisis. So both the work that I'm doing are really interconnected. And of course, as an African person, I'm interested in African issues and things that affect African people on both a domestic and a international level. My name is Daniel Tsekai. I have been involved in a number of issues or a number of campaigns. I'm Eritrean, the Northeastern African country, and I've been drawn to this because I'm seeing my own people, sometimes literally some of my own family members, who are part of the refugee crisis, finding themselves in refugee camps, hiring smugglers to go northward in Africa, even crossing the Mediterranean Sea. And I've been very concerned that people of not just Eritrean descent, but all Africans have been completely ignored when it comes to the refugee crisis. We've done a great job of highlighting the crisis, but not acknowledging that this is very much a global issue that this is not just a Mideast refugee crisis, this is a global refugee crisis and Africans are a major part of it. I started noticing that Kimbra was saying and thinking about a lot of the same things I was, and we decided to start working together and we started writing some articles and putting out information and connecting with other people who want to do something about this. So We Welcome African Refugees is the product of our work, mine and Kimbra's, and a few other people. The essence of it is we are saying African refugees are a major part and growing part of the refugee crisis, the global refugee crisis. And as Canadian citizens, Canadian immigrants, we are saying that we are disturbed that our government and the Canadian population and also allies, migrant justice allies, haven't centered African refugees in their work. And we believe just as the federal government has fast-tracked the applications for Syrian refugees, waived transportation costs for Syrian refugees, and at one time got rid of the caps on private sponsorship, they should do the same for African refugees. Similar to Daniel, I'm from Eritrea as well. So I have so much family members that are at this point displaced globally. I have family in Israel. I have family that are in Libya that I haven't heard from from such a long time. So I have so like, this is a very personal campaign that we're doing. This is something that like, I have to consistently think about something that I don't sleep about because all I'm thinking about is my actual family members out there struggling. So it's really close to my heart. I actually have a cousin that's in Israel that we've been trying to sponsor and he's been waiting for like about four years to even hear anything back from the Canadian government. So this is something that I've been personally stressed about, and this is something that keeps my motivation going because this is actually my people that are displaced. This thing is very close to me. It's very personal. Yeah, it's exactly the same for me. Both Kimber and I come from the same country, Eritrea, and they mentioned Eritrea is a pretty big part of the refugee crisis. About 5,000 people are pouring out of the country every single month, which is incredible considering it's a country of only a little over 5 million people and it's not easy to cross the border. So almost every single Eritrean you'll ever meet knows somebody who is in a refugee camp who has hired a smuggler and tried to cross North Africa, who is in an open detention facility in Israel, 
who has crossed the Mediterranean in a makeshift camp in southern Europe. Every single one of us knows somebody like that. I know a few. I have a few relatives that are in one or more of those situations. So this is a very personal thing. Uh, you know, as Kimber says, we know people personally. And it's been incredibly disheartening to see almost nobody really center this crisis and say, <laughs> why isn't our federal government also opening its borders to African refugees? There's been incredible mobilization for everybody except Africans. That's a problem that hurts. And it's a very stressful time for us. We're seeing the numbers just balloon. More and more people are dying in the sea, and we're scared. We're scared that more people that we love, that we know, are going to die. So this campaign is, yeah, as Kimber says, it's incredibly personal to us. Lay out for listeners the kinds of situations that people in Eritrea and other African countries are fleeing. One big thing, as Kimber mentioned, is mining. So Canada is a mining center. Vancouver, in particular, where I live, has about 1,200 mining companies, exploration firms based here. There's one mining company, a Vancouver-based one, called Nefson Resources, which is based in Eritrea. Now, the broader context is the primary reason people are leaving Eritrea is because of something called the National Service Program. People finish high school, and rather than going to university, they are conscripted into the military. And because there isn't really a war, I mean, there's some border skirmishes right now, actually, with Ethiopia. In general, what people are doing is they're used as forced laborers in various state-run projects. They're paid incredibly poorly. They're tortured. They only see their family once or twice a year. And maybe most importantly, the inscription is indefinite. So they are doing this forced labor for years and years. So people know what they're confronted with. They know that this is their fate. So what they do is they often leave just before or after a year or two in conscription. So Nefton Resources, this Vancouver-based mining company, has been accused with justification of employing a large number of conscripts, forced laborers. Nefton Resources, it's not employing, you know, 5,000 per month or anything. It's not like it's a huge part of people leaving the country, but it is complicit in the system which is pushing people out of the country. So that's one mining company, and there are other mining companies in Eritrea, and there are many mining companies in a lot of the African countries which are producing the largest number of refugees. In general, it's not just mining, it's the unfolding of the history of colonialism. This is what happened. Jobs went to Africa at some point because it was cheap labor, and now they're moving around, and capital is borderless, but people aren't, and people are stuck in various places in the global south without work, and they're finding themselves unable to even go to the countries and continents which displace them in the first place. That's why it's really important to connect these issues. Seeing that Canada has excluded or not even speaking about the African refugee crisis, but in turn is actually benefiting from many mining companies in Africa that are creating a lot of these displacements are profiting off the marginalization of African people and the displacement of African people, which I think is really important because the issues are very interconnected. The African refugee crisis is not isolated to just the African context. It's very much connected to the West and what the West is doing, how the West is capitalizing and profiting off the marginalization and the displacement of African people. Canada is not innocent. It's not innocent, A, because it has worked to systematically exclude African refugees, knowing the numbers of African refugees that are displaced globally. Second, because Canada as a country benefits 
and profit is of specifically mining in African countries. You cannot separate these issues. So I think it's really important that we continue to connect this issue and we talk about how Canada has worked to continue this neocolonial presence in Africa at the same time displacing people. And once people come to that point of saying, okay, I, I need to go, what choices do they have? One of the first things people tend to do is go to a refugee camp. And right there, that tells us a little bit about uh, not so much how people make their decision, but why they're forced to. So the Nairobi Visa Office, which covers 16 mostly East African countries, an office which covers the largest number of African refugees, very few people are having their private sponsorship applications accepted. And even if they are accepted, it often takes years and years for them to be in Canada. So they'll be accepted and it'll take like three years. So a lot of times there'll be unaccompanied children who are not even being reunified with their parents who may be in Canada somewhere. So they get to a refugee camp. They want to be privately sponsored or apply as an asylum seeker. And it's just not happening. It's taking a long time or they're denied. So at that point, they often will work in various jobs, save up enough money or borrow money from families abroad and hire a smuggler who says they'll take them to either Israel or the Mediterranean, Libya specifically. Now, once they hire a smuggler, oftentimes they are held for ransom, they're abused, there's sexual assault, there's torture, people have had limbs cut off, people have faced untold horrors because they're at the mercy of these people who have a great deal of power and who can say, hey, yeah, I said I would take you to Libya for this amount of money, but you need to get 5000 more dollars, which is very common. Uh, yeah, it, actually, just to give a personal story, in 2012, my cousin had paid a smuggler in Egypt to help them cross over on to, to Israel, and he had paid the smuggler $2,000. And then the smuggler decided that he wanted more and told my cousin that if he did not come up with another $5,000, we would take your limbs and we would take your organs and sell it. So my cousin had to call the family and we had to collect $5,000 within only a week in order to like save his life. This is a situation where you really don't have any option but to send the money and you don't even know if they're going to kill your family member or if they're going to go ahead and take their organs or so forth. So if you end up sending that money and you don't know if your family member is going to be alive or not. Tell me about the founding of We Welcome African Refugees. Well, the first thing was we were seeing a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, not enough people, but a lot of people of African descent pointing out the obvious. We're in absolute solidarity with Syrian refugees. We're happy that there's been maybe more mobilization and support among Canadians than I expected. I actually expected a lot more racism. Not that there hasn't been any, but there was a lot more, I think, real solidarity than I even expected. And we're actually in support of open borders. We want to see more than just the 25,000 Syrian refugees who have had their applications fast-tracked. I would like to see a lot more and a lot more support for Syrian refugees once they arrive. There should be real affordable housing, various supports in order to see them really flourish, not just come to Canada, but also flourish in Canada. So while we felt that, we also recognized the incredibly obvious, which was nobody was talking about African refugees. So we were noticing that other people were acknowledging this, were saying, wow, 
while we support Syrian refugees, we also want to say, let's not forget about African refugees. Let's stand in solidarity. So that was the first thing that connected all of us. Another thing that Kimber and I are connecting on more in, in the sense of what this organization is about is we have a, a little bit of a different idea of organizing than a lot of activist organizations. A very common approach would be you have a small group of people who do all the mobilization, who do all the organizing, write press releases, do interviews, speak at rallies, lead the organization, basically. And the people are kind of treated like extras in their drama. We don't hear from them. If there's a rally, no one gets their contact info. No one follows up with them, asks them questions, asks them to get involved in meetings, and so on. We'd like to do something different. We believe the failure to do that kind of thing among most activists is the reason we've seen this erasure of African refugees. When we follow certain established patterns, we're going to have established responses. We're going to support people who are already relatively privileged or connected to privileged communities. The only way we'll actually center already marginalized voices is by getting out there into various communities. And that's why one project that we welcome African refugees is taking on is trying to raise funds to hire organizers in various cities throughout Canada. We want people to get out there into the communities, speak with various community organizations, African community organizations, connect with every single African who has an interest in this, and almost every single one does, and get them involved, hear their voices, center them, and have them lead the organization. Me and Kimbra, we're both Eritreans. We can talk about Eritrea a little bit, but we don't have personal knowledge about a lot of other countries in Africa. We should not be the leaders of this. I personally hope this is the last time we're doing interviews. Our goal really is to organize enough that we reach out and connect a lot of people who have voices, who have something to say. And when we have that, we'll have a deeply rooted organization. So I think that idea, that insight into how we should be organizing is what brought me and brought Kimbra into this. So we actually set up a GoFundMe, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to at least fundraise about $6,000 to hire key organizers in key cities, specifically Vancouver, Toronto, Edmonton, or Calgary, for about like 20 hours a week for four months to start. And the funding is going to obviously help pay for their expenses and provide a living wage, but also to get people to organize within their own spaces and to get different communities to come together. So this campaign that we're starting and trying to get funding is really key to like our organizing because this is really going to be the starting point of how the organization is formed. So one of the key things is funding is definitely to provide a living wage to those that are going to be key organizers because we do believe that Activism, a lot of it is volunteering, but at the same time, we are marginalized people. African people are already marginalized. So if we can at least provide a living wage for the key organizers, we could definitely get some stuff started. It's not really fair if we ask people to completely volunteer their time. Yeah, and I should mention one of the organizers is Kimbra. Kimbra would be somebody in who Toronto. will be organizing in Toronto. And Kimbra has already been doing this kind of work, and this is how we've come across each other reaching out with specifically Eritreans and creating that organizing model there. So we'd like to just carve out more time for Kimbra and for others in different cities. Those people will be identified down the road. But yeah, finding people who will carve out a certain amount of time to do the grunt work of actually reaching out to people. We've got to actually go and meet people where they're at, whether that's at community events, on the street, wherever that may be. 
targeting certain key people and asking them who do they think cares about this and wants to do something about this, and having those meetings, those one-on-one meetings, not just throwing out information and hoping it trickles out to people. And tell me more about what shape you think the organization will take once you've done that initial base building work. I can talk a little bit about what I vision in Toronto. Of course, once we have our key organizers in different cities, obviously people are going to vision, depending on their circumstances and the environment of the city, how they're going to organize. But specifically in Toronto, my vision is to first out, get out to all the communities and then have regular conferences where people come, specifically having like African refugees as centered and bringing their knowledges, what they think is important, some of the issues that they want to discuss, where do they want to like go from here? Like, how do they want to organize? How do they want to address the government? How do they want to address immigration agencies? And how do they want to represent the narrative that we're speaking on? When we speak about the African refugee narrative, how do they want to position themselves? In terms of how I want organized in Toronto, I really want to get African people in the center and have them come out with the ways in which they want to represent this organization and how do they want to continue to go. We're really looking at having specifically African refugees as leadership, depending on their status and how comfortable they are with being out in the public, but really centering around how refugees feel, what is necessary, what are the key things we need to speak about, what are the issues that refugees are facing. The valid information is only going to come from African refugees. It can't come from anybody else. Only African refugees understand the situation completely, so only they can really lead a sustainable movement. Beyond raising enough funds, what other challenges do you anticipate facing as you work to turn this vision for organizing and organization into reality? With any kind of campaigning, the main obstacle is usually demoralization. People are facing a number of difficulties and they are overwhelmed. People have a lot of problems and sometimes they feel understandably, what's the point? How are we going to organize and push a federal government, which for whatever reason has a political interest in keeping African refugees out. I always want to emphasize that because the arguments tend to be, oh, they just didn't know there was a failure of knowledge. There wasn't enough public awareness for people to know that African refugees are suffering as well. As soon as they know that, then the liberal government, out of the goodness of its heart, will open its borders to African refugees as well. I don't believe that. I know that in the 80s, when Eritrea was fighting a Soviet-backed Ethiopia, the Western world's borders were wide open for Eritreans. Now, not so much. The political context matters. It matters that Syrian refugees, many of whom were relatively middle class until recently, and it's easier for Canadian citizens to, uh, if they're going to support refugees from anywhere, it would be from somewhere like Syria. So I believe there is some kind of economic, some kind of political reason why borders are closed for some people and open for others. So people know this, right? So people will feel rightfully demoralized and they'll feel like, what's the point? Okay, what, we organize, we get a bunch of meetings together, all of us talk, and then what? They're going to listen to us? Why would they listen to us? You know, people would have a right to feel that way. So that would be a challenge. Unifying people may also be a challenge. This is supposed to be like a pan-African movement, so it may be a little bit challenging in terms of unifying all people from different affected African countries in such a short amount of time. 
So it may also be a challenge that people tend to look at their own situation and not really see how they're all interconnected. As Daniel was saying, the fact that African refugees are excluded is very political. For example, like the UN Refugee Agency just released recently that 880 people have drowned from May 23rd to May 30th. The majority of those people were African people. So how African refugees can just have died and drowned in the sea and this not being a global crisis is due to the global anti-blackness that exists on an international level. We can't erase the fact that anti-blackness exists on a global level. And that is why African refugees are excluded. And it is very political. So I guess bringing that to light and unifying, because I feel like this movement can't happen unless we have a pan-African approach to it, where we have everyone from different walks of life that come from different African countries come together and speak about their realities and their experiences of being excluded. Anti-Blackness is a real thing that happens. The exclusion of African refugees from the Canadian narrative on refugees or the deserving refugees is part of global anti-Blackness and Canada's long history of anti-Blackness. What will the key steps over the next few months be for continuing to build We Welcome African Refugees? The main thing is fundraising. So as Kimber mentioned, there's the GoFundMe page. We will have events in both Vancouver and Toronto soon. We're planning what that will look like. They will serve as both fundraising events to hire organizers, but also it'll be organizing as well. You know, we'll invite a lot of different organizations. We'll reach out to a lot of people and have them come and talk about what's been going on, what we're planning on working on, lay out the issue, lay out the ever-changing Canadian immigration landscape and what some of the pressure points might be. And yeah, hopefully bring in more people who know somebody who's working on this because honestly, there aren't a lot of organizations that are working on this. So fundraising events. And after that, we're hoping to raise the funds soon enough that we can get organizers out there. And at that point, we'll have to figure out a plan for what an organizer should be doing. We'll be talking about this more, but we don't have big public things set up just yet. We're trying to build power on the community level first. We're trying to get people informed on a one-on-one level and have them connected with each other before we just go out there. And Because, you know, at any time, we could organize a big rally and have a lot of people come out. We're both connected to various communities that could do that pretty quickly. It has its benefits, has its strengths. But at the end of the day, as I've said before, we don't want to get in this habit of a few key people leading movements that are essentially top-heavy and even hollow. We're trying to build people. We're trying to get people involved and informed and empowered institutionally so that no matter what happens to us, the organization keeps going and is as strong as it ever would have been. You have been listening to my interview with Kimbra Johannes and Daniel Tsegai of We Welcome African Refugees. To learn more about their work, search for We Welcome African Refugees on Facebook or GoFundMe. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.